morning. I'm always struck by how good it is to be together with the people of God as we enter into the sufferings uh, together of Christ. Um, so good to be in the company of his people as we enter into this holy week together. Let us pray this morning. Lord, this morning uh, we have remembered and we have rehearsed and recalled the day of your entry, the day of your triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Help us, Lord, to welcome you with our whole hearts and with our whole lives, that you, the true king of the whole world, might remake us, Lord, even as you are making, remaking the world. We thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. I don't know about you, but when I read this passage of the triumphal entry, one of the things uh, that strikes me almost is comical. Uh, almost um, it all, it is, is this line at the end uh, in verse 10, where it seems the whole city almost has been swept up into this great parade celebrating this man that's, being, that's coming through the parade. And there are so many people being swept into it and starting to join the celebration um, that the people on the periphery don't even realize what it is that they're celebrating. Um, they just sort of been swept up into it. So much so that you know that they you can just, I just imagine people being swept up, you know, for city blocks and they're into this celebration. And all of a sudden they're like, hey, and they turn, they're like, hey, who is this? Who is this guy that we're celebrating? What's happening here? I think this question of who is this is, uh, is a good one for us to take and turn and use as a guiding question as we enter into Holy Week. Who is this? Who is this that comes now riding on a donkey into the streets of Jerusalem? Who is he? What's he doing? What, what is it that he hopes to accomplish? I don't know if you've ever been swept up into a thing that you didn't quite understand uh, but one time, uh, when I first moved to Chicago, um, I hardly knew anybody when I first moved to Chicago. How many of you hardly had any friends here when you first moved here? I imagine quite a few of you. Yeah, I hardly knew a soul. And I was starting graduate school in the fall, and I thought, you know, it would be really smart to get, to get there a couple months early and get into the routine of work and get to know the place and all that sort of stuff. But what I didn't count on was the fact that that was going to give me two months of, like, friendlessness, you know, total friendlessness. And um, so I would catch myself from time to time just driving up and down Lake Cook Road up, uh, up in the northern suburbs, uh, just listening to music, trying to figure out something to do. And one day I was driving down Lake Cook Road, and um, I, I found myself sort of caught up in some traffic. And, um, and then I, I thought, well, this is interesting. It's kind of a weird time to be having traffic. I think it was a Saturday afternoon. And all of a sudden, I looked off to the side, and there was this big, one of those big flashing signs that said, Ravinia Festival ahead. Uh, free parking. And I was like, huh, I wonder what a Ravinia Festival is. Like, I had no idea. I had no idea what one was, but it sounded like fun. Um, and so I thought, well, maybe I'll just follow this and see where it goes. And so I stayed in the traffic, and then it said, 
uh, free parking ahead. And I was like, well, free's good, you know, because I was a graduate student. And, um, and so I, I, I parked, and then it said, there was another sign that said free shuttle bus. Um, and I was like, okay, free shuttle bus. And so I got on the free shuttle bus, um, and I started looking around, and I was trying to piece together what was happening. And these looked like pretty well-to-do white people, so I figured we weren't going to, like, a drag race. You know, I didn't know, I didn't know exactly what was going on, you know, here at, at this, but I, but I started to put together this was, I, you know, maybe, I don't know, maybe, it didn't look like a Renaissance fair or anything like that. Nobody was in costume. And so I got to the gate, and I walked up to the gate, and I said, you know what? And I went to the ticket window, and then I started to piece together. This was a place where people listen to music, and, and then I bought a ticket. And then I walked in, and I think they were playing Beethoven Symphony Number no. 9 that night. And I walked into this magical world of the Ravinia Festival and saw this thing. But I had put it together, what was happening, sort of bit by bit, clue by clue, as I entered into the joy of it. And I imagine that's sort of what happened to these folks that were watching Jesus come into town in Jerusalem, trying to put it together, you know, um, bit by bit. What, what actually is going on here? And I imagine for a first century Jew living under the oppression of the Roman Empire, stumbling onto this scene, um, a lot of these clues that were there would have immediately resonated with them. Um, I think about, you know, Jesus coming in on riding on a donkey. And I, I know that most of the people in that crowd would have been familiar with the prophecy in Zechariah 9. Zechariah's prophecy of the coming kingdom. This rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Imagine they started to say, is this this coming king that Zechariah prophesied would come and would redeem us? And then as they looked and they saw all of these cloaks laid out on the road, um, I imagine that this, um, this incredible sign of loyalty in the first century, um, this, this symbol of I'm giving you my outer garment and I'm going to lay it down here on the road because I want you to know that this is a symbol of everything I have and I'm, and I'm giving you, I'm putting before you everything that I have. Um, it had been over 200 years, but everyone in Jerusalem held Judas Maccabeus as a folk hero. Judas Maccabeus um, had arrived in Jerusalem in a manner similar to this like 200 years before after conquering powerful armies that had, that had oppressed Israel. And in that day, the story was told, people also spontaneously cut branches from trees um, as he passed by. So you can see this sort of same thing is happening. And people get swept up in the moment, and they're seeing it. And then, not only that, so you've got the cloaks, and you've got the palms, and you've got the prophet coming into town on a donkey. But then you hear the sounds of people singing royal songs. Songs about the king. And to top it all off, sort of the coup de grace is this, if you had any doubt about it, uh, when you heard people saying, hail the son of David. The son of David. 
no one could have missed it. No one could have missed what was really going on here. Because David had been the most beloved king ever in this city. And the people had waited almost a thousand years for the coming of a son of his who would do what he had done. The longings had been gathering up and piling up for so long. Swept up in the moment. I think even as they were swept in the moment, it was easy to miss what was really going on because of their mismatched occupations, their mismatched expectations. What was this king coming to do? What was he coming to do? Now, if Nate Silver or uh, George Gallup had lived in the time of the triumphal procession, we probably have some great data around what the hopes and expectations for the coming king of Israel would be, right? And we'd go to the 538 blog, we'd read about how 98% of Jerusalem dwellers believe that the first order of business for the new king is to throw off the Roman oppressors that tax and abuse us. That's what we're looking, that's what we're expecting is this king who is going to come, who will come for us. We're looking for a leader who will remake the world the way we want it. Come, king, and remake the world in the way we want it. Deliver us from our oppressors. But, as we know, this king, the true king of the world is coming to remake the world, but the way he's going to do it is not by immediately delivering them from their oppressors. The way he's going to do it, though, is by addressing the thing that put them into oppression in the first place. You see, in the history of Israel, people knew that what had brought them into enslavement, the thing that had always put them in exile was sin and disobedience. So um, when Jesus comes as the king, his first order of business is not to deal with the symptom. His first order of business is to go after the disease because he knows He knows that if he overthrew the powers that were currently oppressing the Romans, unless he dealt with the sin and the disobedience that brought them into oppression in the first place, the people of God would just end up back under oppression. I'm interested in how this lands on our ears this morning. I think it's curious Because I think in some ways we have become so accustomed to this message of Jesus dealing with sin instead of dealing with the powers. Um, And I think sometimes we've become dulled to how powerful and important it is. And I think one of the reasons that is is because I think we tend to still flatten out 
this idea of sin as sort of a moral code, as a list of rules that I'm not allowed to break. And we make sin into this profoundly personal thing. It's almost as if I'm, I'm here and I have this list going above my head of all of these wrongs that I've committed over the course of my life, and this list gets longer and longer, and this is the list that God is keeping track of, right? Is this list that's over my head of these sins, and what Jesus has come to do is to, is to wipe this list away so that then I can sort of feel unburdened and free of guilt and shame, right? And so when we have that view of sin, I think, I think it, it's so flattened out that we don't really see what Jesus is doing, the full scope of what Jesus is doing. What we've got to remember is that sin ultimately is not just the breaking of a moral code. It is that, but it's way more than that. Sin is ultimately a failure to live up to our human design and calling. It's a failure to live up to what we were made for. I think most of us know this Greek word for sin, hamartia, which literally means to miss the mark. It's as if there is a purpose for humanity, and our purpose is to bear the faithful, loving mercy and wisdom of God to the world. But because of sin, we miss the mark. And instead of living for others, we live for ourselves. Instead of worshiping God, we worship ourselves. Instead of caring for the creation, we abuse it and neglect it. Instead of loving others in a self-sacrificing way, we use others for our own gain and our own benefit. It's a failure of purpose. I think Dallas Willard summed it up beautifully, and you guys, I, I quote this all the time because it's so powerful to me. Dallas said, we dream of systems and structures so perfect that no one will ever have to be good. I think in so many ways, that's become the evangelical project, right? We've kind of gotten bored with this idea of personal sin, and we thought, you know what, let's shift to some structures. Let's remake some structures, and let's make them so perfect that no one will ever have to be good. No one, let's make a system so perfect that no one will ever be abused again, or no one will ever go hungry again. And the gospel proclaims, and the cross proclaims, that that is wildly insufficient. Because what Jesus has come to do is to come into the world and remake it by, by remaking people who will become good by his grace and reclaim again the original purpose for humanity, which is to bear the loving, faithful care of the creator to the world and care for it. So that, so that the world becomes beautiful and filled with care. Jesus deals with the powers, but the way he's going to deal with them is by putting the responsibility that we have neglected to do. Think about this. 
in a world where neighbor love is not practiced, the industrial military complex can come in and say, we've got you, we'll keep you safe. Do you see what's happened? The role and the responsibility that was assigned to human beings has been abdicated, and the powers have taken it up. And Jesus says, I'm going to come, and I'm going to overcome the powers. But the way I'm going to do it is by remaking a people, by bringing to a people the forgiveness of sins, bringing them out of exile, back into relationship with God restoring them so that as they worship him, they will become like him and I will remake the world through them. That is this gospel project. That is how this king of the whole world is remaking the world. If the last 10 years of events around the world have taught us anything, It's that revolutions without renewed hearts are insufficient for bringing about the kind of true shalom our hearts really long for. Think about the Arab Spring and all the promise that we thought was in that movement. Revolutions without renewed hearts are insufficient for bringing about the kind of true shalom our hearts long for. The true shalom our hearts long for comes as Christ Jesus lays down his life for us on the cross, brings us through his mercy and through his blood the forgiveness of sins so that then we can be restored a new people, walking in newness of life, reclaiming our human vocation and remaking the world one little bit at a time. The true king of the whole world isn't going to settle for a one-time turnover of power, and neither should we. He's going for the jugular. So this king talked about what he's going to do. And now let's shift to how he might do it. What would his reign, what does his reign look like? And I think we, we learned so much about what his reign is going to look like by looking at how he comes into town. Um, it's very common for kings in, in this world to come into, the, come into town um, and announcing their rule and their reign. And typically they would do this with great fanfare riding on you know, the most beautiful white horse that one could possibly find, carrying with them the spoils of war, making everyone see that they had conquered and they were in charge. But Jesus, obviously, is the true king of the whole world, comes into the world very different, announcing his reign very different. First thing that I think is important to notice is that... um, I love, let's look at verse six. Um, Well, actually, let's look at uh, verse three. Actually, let's go back to verse two. (laughs) You guys, thanks for being patient with it. We're not going to one. We're not doing that. Don't get crazy. 
I love this. He brings his disciples to him, and he says, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. So the way that a king would typically, right, earn the animal that he would ride into town on would be either, either capture it and conquer it from the place that he, that he conquered, right, or through his own incredible means and resources, acquire and purchase the animal. But the animal that Jesus comes into town on is provided to him straight from the Father's hand. It's just there for him. The animal's just there. He says to the disciples, hey, guess what, guys? We're gonna need a donkey, and the Father's gonna give us one, go into town and get it and untie it. I don't know if this reminds us of anything, but I think it should. I think it should remind us of the world, of the garden, where everything humanity needed in order to do the thing that God had called them to do, which was care and steward over creation, everything they needed was provided by the Father's hand. And this king comes into town riding on the Father's abundant provision. And it's not just that. Um, he comes sitting on the cloaks. He comes literally sitting on the loyalty and the devotion of the beloved community. Most kings come into town arrayed in the garments and in the wealth of the people that they've conquered through fear. But Jesus comes into town sitting, literally sitting on, surrounded by the loyalty and the devotion of the beloved community who have given themselves to him because of his great love. He comes, and he comes humbly. He comes as a servant. He comes walking in complete trust and obedience. He comes laying down his life in self-sacrificing love for the good of the world. If anybody had thought that maybe Jesus wasn't serious when he said, when he'd given the instructions um, earlier in this chapter, in Ma- earlier in chapter 20 in Matthew, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must first become your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is showing us that the way he is always, the way he is now, and the way he is always going to lead is by serving and laying his life down. And what I hope we notice this morning is that this is Jesus fulfilling Again, the original call to humanity to be served, to be servants of the world. The true king of the world who enters the city today is also the first man of the new creation that's coming. 
He enters the world as a servant, the servant king. I was struck this morning as I was praying um, for this sermon. I was asking the Lord for just greater clarity around one piece of this passage. And, And he granted greater clarity. And I remember being struck and thinking, Jesus, you still serve. He's still serving us, his people, this morning. The formula hasn't changed, and it never will. Kingdom greatness is service. Kingdom leadership is service, laying down our lives for the good of the world and for others. As we enter into Holy Week all together, I want to invite us all to let this question of who is this king? What is he doing? How is he doing it? What is he doing in me? What is he doing through us? How is he doing it in me? How is he going to do it through us? Let this question shake and disrupt us. And let us us open our lives to let this king, this humble king on a donkey, come in. Let us welcome him with open arms, laying everything we have at his feet, saying, Jesus, use me in the way that you choose to remake the world in the way that you see fit, not according to my own designs and devices, but according to your great wisdom, faithfulness, and love. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.